all of you. Took a few seconds to give them a chance to unmute and put me through, so we should be on. Beautiful Sabbath day here, and I hope there as well. Muted. We are here only a few days now from Trumpets, which comes next Friday. My goal is to get uh, back home uh, by Tuesday, Wednesday at the very latest, and be preparing for trumpets and atonement and peace of tabernacles and all the wonderful things that are about to happen that God gives us every year. Now, in light of that, you remember back in Exodus 12, when Passover was coming, that they were to take a lamb on the tenth day of the month and put it up, make sure that it had no flaws, that it was a perfect lamb of the flock. Could have been a sheep, could have been a goat. God gave that opportunity. But it was to be a judge perfect, no flaws, no blemishes, no problems with it. And then it would be used as the Passover. So there was a time there of preparation. And that's what I uh, am going to start out with today is preparing. Because they would prepare the lamb. They were also to examine themselves over a period of time before Passover. And indeed, if you go to 1 Corinthians 12, it gives us a very strong warning there from Paul that we were to examine ourselves carefully before Passover, even as they did the lamb, and be sure that we have the proper qualities of a lamb, humble, meek, uh, seeking to put sin out, examining and finding whatever sin we still have, and preparing to be willing to put forth the effort that it takes to put sin out for seven days. Now, Christ himself did the greatest part of that on the first day, when he became the sacrifice for our sins, <clears throat> because even though we changed it, repented of the sins, didn't continue to sin, which is what the six days after the first day are about, is the time of man putting his sin out, but without Christ there to rid us of the penalty of that sin, then our sin would remain. So he did by far the biggest part on the first day. Uh, we had the Passover, the beginning of the 14th. He was tortured and died on the 14th. That is the day that is marked. It is the important day by far, and we used to overlook it and have kind of a party on the next night and keep the next one as a Sabbath, and we were doing it wrong, as we all know. Uh, but his part is by far the most important part, and ours is puny by comparison. He was able in one day to erase all the sin of the world, ultimately, through his sacrifice. Now, our effort by comparison is that for the following six days, we, we try to put out sin also the first day, but the following six days are primarily our part. And we struggle futilely at getting rid of sins, attitudes, feelings uh, that we may have had for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years or more uh, that we've not expunged from our thoughts, our character. Uh, they're still there. They come back to give us difficulty. So even though it's symbolic and we work hard at putting it out, like we do the leaven, the leaven symbolic of the sin during that time, um, when the days are over, sin comes back. And indeed, we never got completely rid of sin during that six days anyway. 
we worked at it, we thought about it more than we do on, say, any other day of the year, because it was a symbolic time, and we worked a little harder on it. Then we kind of tend to ease up as humans and not think about it quite as much after that, but daily we're to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, and that is a year-round very, very difficult chore to do. So Christ did an enormous amount by dying on the first day of unleavened bread, and it's a day that is a feast day and to be hallowed and set apart forevermore as a result. Our efforts are always puny compared to his. But still in all, we were told then to prepare for Passover, and Paul drilled that in very hard there in First Corinthians 12, that we not take it flippantly or in a wrong attitude, but that we come humbly before God, recognizing our faults, our sins, our difficulties, and not being discouraged by them, but being encouraged that there is an answer to them through Christ. So we examine ourselves and go ahead and take the Passover anyway, uh, not being perfect, still having sins, still having problems, and needing him not only to die, but to live again and help us throughout our converted lives to overcome and grow through his Holy Spirit and power. So he is the key to salvation. We are not. We continue to do our small part in the whole process, but he is the key. So we have to prepare. Now that carries over to Pentecost in the sense that we start a 50-day count at the weekly Sabbath during Pentecost. And it is a count 50 time. We count seven more Sabbaths. And the next day, the 50th day on a Sunday, then is Pentecost. But the very fact that we are to count, to keep track of, to number those Sabbaths, means that we are looking forward to and preparing for the Pentecost. Just as... We don't get married immediately after being betrothed. There is a period of time normally where you get engaged, betrothed, and then you prepare for the marriage. And Pentecost pictures a betrothal, and then we have the long hot summer until we're married in the fall, pictured by the feast of atonement when we become at one with, totally at one with Christ. So what does the bride do? She prepares herself. She makes herself ready for the wedding. And if she does not prepare herself, she will be found on the outside. Only those who prepare themselves and get themselves ready for the wedding, properly groomed, properly dressed, uh, garments of righteousness will be the ones who are a part of the bride. Liars, thieves, adulterers, fornicators, Sabbath breakers will not be there. Christ makes it very clear in Revelation 21 and other places that those will not be included in the kingdom of God nor the bride of Christ. So it is a time of preparing ourselves so that he might marry us, be willing to. And his bride needs to be adorned and ready, not just hoping she makes it, but preparing to make it. Well, I'm leading down to the fall here. I'm going to uh, Zechariah 14. We've been there many times. But the whole world has to prepare, and God is going to put the world through a preparation period that is, to us, 
beyond our imagination, beyond our comprehension, what is about to come down on Israel and on the rest of the nations of the world, as outlined by all the prophecies of the Bible. The world is not ready to come to the Feast of Tabernacles, not by any stretch of the imagination. They don't recognize Christ. They don't know who he is. In fact, the thought crossed my mind this morning. We're seeing an awful lot about UFOs now and uh, strange alien ships, and a lot of them part of the military of the United States, believe it or not. They can travel at incredible speeds and have incredible shapes, and part of it is demonism, I am absolutely positive, and part of it is our own government that has been able to make these things with Satan's help. So we have a great deal being written right now about aliens, about unidentified flying objects, and it just hit me this morning, Christ is a UFO. When he comes, he will be an unidentified flying object. He flies now. He has his chariot, as mentioned in Ezekiel and so on, that he flies in. He comes back and forth to the earth on a fairly regular basis and has. So he will come. And no one is going to really know who he is. The Antichrist, the false prophet, is going to come in such a way that a lot of people are going to think that's the Christ. But in truth, it's the Antichrist, the true unidentified flying object, wrongly identified as a returning Savior. The Christ himself, in his comings and goings, the world is not recognized, do not know who he is, what he's doing, or how he's going to do it. So he is the ultimate unidentified one coming to save this world from itself. But in the meantime, he has to prepare their minds so that they're willing to accept and bow their knee before him. And that means most of the flesh dwelling on this earth today, are going to die. And it will be this incredible trauma that will bring them to the point of submission to Christ. Now, Zechariah 14 goes into this in terms of the Feast of Tabernacles, because the feast and the great last, last great day are the time when Christ invites any and everyone to come to his kingdom. In the meantime, he is selecting a few. And we can only come if called by the Father and the Son. John uh, 6.44 makes that very, very clear. That you can only come if you're called. And when Christ spoke of the last great day there in John... He said, let any man come. So it's wide open to anybody in the millennium and the great white throne judgment. You don't have to be called personally. Everyone is called automatically. And then they have to respond. But some, even then, will not be willing to respond. So here in Zechariah 14, verse 9, the Lord shall be king over all the earth, just be one Lord, and it shall come to pass, verse 16, that everyone that is left of all the nations which come against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, they're not going to do that without being prepared ahead of time, is the point I've been making here. It is going to be a dreadful thing to get them prepared. Their attitudes will have to be changed, their approach, who they worship, who they recognize as God, will all have to be changed. And it will take the death of nearly everybody on earth 
before those who are left, the remnants of that onslaught that are willing to accept Christ. Now, we're the bride to be. And we also have to prepare ourselves for Christ, for His coming, and the fall holy days, Peace of Trumpets coming first. We have to be prepared in order to be part of the first resurrection, the resurrection of the bride. Because that's all that will be in that first resurrection is the 144,000. So the bride has to be prepared for Feast of Trumpets and what it ultimately means in the resurrection. She has to be prepared for Day of Atonement in the marriage ceremony. And then she has to be made ready as a mother, a wife of Christ, and a mother to the children of the earth who survive. So there's a great deal of preparation for us, and a great deal of preparation then by Christ, using Satan and mankind to prepare them to be ready to come up and worship the King, the Lord of hosts. You and I have that opportunity right now to prepare ourselves to worship the King. And I emphasize this, I think, almost without fail every year, that we're not coming to feast on food alone. Christ is the bread of life. He is the feast. We are given second tithe and opportunity to have good physical things at the feast, but those are only a type. The real feast is the sermons. The real feast is the prayer. The real feast is our uh, dedication and our uh, meditation on God. Worshiping the King, the bread of life, the water of life. That's what it's all about. All these physical things we look forward to are just symbols of that. Even getting out of our normal bed in our normal house and sleeping elsewhere, a temporary dwelling, is to help prepare us for what is to come is that whatever we have here, whatever we've enjoyed in this life, is only temporary. Uh, it's, it's, to us, quite a temporary. That is, we live 60, 70, 80, 90 years, maybe, 100, uh, for a short while here, but it's temporary. We're here only as ambassadors for the kingdom of God, which is eternal. So he has us stay in temporary dwelling during the Feast of Tabernacles, the picture that this earth and the life that has been on it up until the Feast of Tabernacles in the Kingdom of God has only been a very, very temporary thing. It is to be superseded by the Kingdom of God pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles which will then go on forevermore. We, as the bride, have opportunity to be there a little early in spirit now, as we live out the rest of our physical lives. We are, in one sense, already born again. Now, both analogies can occur and do fit that when we are baptized, we are only begotten because we start a new life like a baby does. So it's a begettal uh, that leads to being born into the kingdom ultimately in full. But since we are the church and we're being prepared ahead of the rest of the world, we are in one sense already born into the kingdom because we have the Spirit. And he says that we are in the kingdom. You have to put it all together, and it's not, it's not either 
only begotten or only born, there are elements of both because it's symbolism. So when we have the life of Christ living in us, then we are in one sense born of that spirit. Although we are still in the embryo stage, begotten but not yet fully born. So it's a physical analogy, and we are not fully born again, obviously, as Christ said, until uh, we're spirit. That which is born of the flesh is spirit. But we have the spirit within us, which makes it a type of born in one sense. So the Protestants have it totally wrong. They think they're born again. The church, I think, had it partly right in that we're begotten at uh, baptism, repentance and baptism. But then we are given the Spirit of God to dwell in us, and that Spirit is to be there forevermore. We are never to be without that Spirit until we're literally, truly transformed and born into the kingdom of God. So, maybe that's a little hard to grasp, but there's two analogies running together there. John Breidenbaugh did some writing on it, which I thought was good, uh, but it's a little bit hard to follow, because you've got two analogies going at once. That just happened to come to mind here. Uh, but we have a head start, and that ties in with what we begun to understand about the kingdom of God, when Christ returns to dwell with the two witnesses and the remnant in Zion, that will be a kingdom. And he says Jerusalem will never fall thereafter. Well, we know physical Jerusalem is taken over by the beast, and that's when we flee after building the temple, flee to Zion, and it does fall again, doesn't it? The physical city does, but the church, the spiritual Jerusalem, does not. It flees to Zion, where it will be overseen by, ruled over by Christ through human uh, ministers, and it will be a place, Zion in the original promised land. It will have people who've been brought from around the world, so it'll have subjects. It will have the law of God, and it will have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, there supervising everything, says he had come and dwell with us. So it will be a mini-kingdom. I call it a microcosm. I think now I can call it a kingdom. And those who are part of that, even though they have not been born, not been transformed into spirits, they're still begotten, still growing, still preparing for their ultimate birth into the kingdom of God as a spirit. Not just having the spirit, but being spirit, fully God. Whereas now we are partially God. The kingdom of God is within us through Christ and his spirit, which dwells in us. So I think we need to understand that distinction. So the kingdom of God is going to begin with the remnant church, and they will continue as spiritual Jerusalem right through, without any interruption, into the kingdom of God. Those still being alive will be changed immediately. Those who have died will be uh, changed just ahead of them, resurrected just ahead of them. So... You go directly from the mini-kingdom of God to the great kingdom of God, which will take some time to set up. But when Christ returns in glory, so that all eyes may see him, that's when he makes the preparations for the greater kingdom. But he has to come and subdue everyone that is left in rebellion before the Father and the New Jerusalem and the Bride come down with him. So he comes back and forth a few times, but he does well with us in the small kingdom ahead of the 
great kingdom, but it is a continuation that never stops. So when he says Jerusalem will never be knocked down or fall again, he's talking spiritually there, because it does fall one more time to the beast and the false prophet, who will live there, reign there, and have the treasures of the temple that are currently buried that will come forth. And they will take those over. It says right there in Daniel 11 that they will have those. And that he will set his throne up on the uh, holy mountain of God. So Jerusalem, as built, physically will fall one more time. But he says once the kingdom has started with the remnant and Christ, it will never fail again. So it will go right through into the eternal kingdom. It is, in that sense, eternal. Just as we are already, in that sense, eternal. We haven't been transformed into spirit, but we have already entered into eternal life because the life of that spirit is with us. And as long as we submit to it and obey God, it will always be there. Whether we die and our name is recorded and ready to be resurrected into the kingdom and changed into full spirit, or whether the spirit is within us and we're still humanly alive and simply transforms totally. So that's the way that's coming down. So these people have to be prepared ahead of time to come and worship the king, the Lord of hosts. And they will come, and if they don't, there will be no rain, because God is going to make sure that all human beings who live obey him. And if they do not, they will die. And if they do not, they will ultimately die eternally in the lake of fire. So you will either be converted and transformed to spirit, if you've ever been human, or you will go into the lake of fire and be there forever. So this whole is a preparation time. The feasts, each one of the feasts, has a preparation time. And that may not be listed so much for trumpets and atonement and tabernacles, as it is earlier with the Passover and Pentecost. But once you understand about the bride and preparing the bride, uh, those fall holy days have to be prepared for. And that's why I'm speaking today on this, that we get our minds and our hearts in the right attitude toward God so that he can respond to us. And we will be prepared. Now, we're going to go from there back to Jeremiah 29. And we're going to see some of this that I've been discussing written out for us. Jeremiah 29. Now, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the residue of the elders which were carried away captive. Now, that's symbolic of the residue of the elders and the people who have gone into the uh, vomiting out that Christ did, scattering us as vomit, and we have a residue left. And this prophecy then is directed as an end-time prophecy uh, to those of us who have survived the, the uh, spewing out what Christ did of the church. So recognize that Jeremiah, within the book itself, talks about latter days, so does Ezekiel, so does Isaiah. Uh, they all show internally that they're written for the end time. And within their context, they show the day of the Lord, they show uh, all the end time things that the book of Revelation also talks about, uh, kind of combines a lot of the prophecies of the Old Testament 
in the last book of the Bible written and puts those prophecies together for us. So make no mistake, these are all written for us. And they're written not, in that sense, primarily to physical Israel in the world. They're written to spiritual Israel, to the church. Because he deals with the church, spiritual Israel first, then with the world. And I think that shows through and rings true because the story is so very clear that Christ is coming to the original promised land and will gather his elect there to do a gospel to the world. Not in the beginning, but from there, from Mount Ephraim, will go out the word of God around the world to the two witnesses and the witnesses that are in Zion as witnesses of who God is. So it is a witness of the church, uh, preaching by two men primarily, but the witness is the whole church, as we see back in Isaiah 41 through 45, several times it's mentioned. <coughs> so I want to pick up parts of this uh, here's where the letter actually starts. Uh, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, to all that are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. So that 70 years is to picture a time when Israel was in the captivity of Babylon. Now the church has been in the captivity of Babylon, even though we were raised up in one sense out of Babylon through the preaching of Herbert Armstrong, whom God called to do just that, uh, we have been in Babylon, and of course in Micah 4 and other places, he tells the church to get out of the midst of Babylon and go dwell in the wilderness, and God's people are going to be brought to that point I think very soon, and they will then do that, and the remnant will gather. So, the 70 years that the church is here in Babylon is important. And I'm going to have a few things to say about 70 years that I think we haven't maybe recognized and understood in the past. Uh, it'll be some of it speculation, but I think... Uh, I got a little more insight into that recently. <clears throat> and that there's more than 170 years here at the end. Anyway, we'll get to that shortly. So he said in this 70 years uh, that we are to build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens, we're going to be there a while. And I have used that uh, to show that from 1947... When the college began, Herbert Armstrong had in mind very definitely the building of church houses, of church congregations across the nation and around the world. And that that really began, he had had it sort of in mind ahead of time. Excuse me. In the way that he kind of came to it was he tried to raise up little congregations there in Oregon uh, by his personal evangelism, and he'd go back home from whatever town he had preached in, and that little group that had responded positively would then drift apart and wouldn't, uh, wouldn't last. So he began to realize that they had to have someone trained to lead them. A, sh a flock of sheep without a shepherd dies. And that is spiritually true as well. There are people today in the Church of God, or who were in the Church of God, and are not today, even though still think they are, who say that we don't need shepherds, that we don't need a minister, that we, each of us is a shepherd, each of us knows what to do. Each of us gets to find his own way, and yet we have many scriptures which show us clearly uh, man cannot uh, survive and learn and grow unless he's taught. 
and the ministers were provided to do those things. I won't go through them all now. I think you and I know them pretty well. But some people think that they don't need a shepherd and that they are doing fine. Now let me ask you a question. What did the Pharisees think they were? They thought they were the children of Abraham. They thought they worshipped the true God. They still gave lip service to the Sabbath. They still gave lip service to the commandments and thought that they were righteous. In fact, they were self-righteous, but they thought they were righteous. They thought they were followers of God and that God was happy with them. That was their judgment, their perception of themselves. Now, Christ had a totally different perception of them. He called them a generation of vipers, that's poisonous snakes, whited walls, that is filthy, but white, uh, a, a coat of white put over them, whitewashed, open sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Now, those are some pretty strong indictments against the Pharisees who thought they were perfectly righteous. But you know what they did? They stole widows' homes. They stole even their own mothers' homes. They lied. They cheated. They fornicated. They committed adultery. They didn't keep the commandments that they used as a symbol of righteousness. And Christ said they weren't righteous. He said they were open sepulchers, that they were snakes in the grass. Now, anybody who claims to be a Christian today and a follower of Christ, who lies, who steals homes, who steals land, and you know some of them personally, are not Christians. They are not followers of God. They think they are. They still call themselves Christian. But Christ says liars and thieves will not be in the kingdom of God. They have to repent of that. If they don't, they will not be there. And Christ makes it very clear what will happen to the what? The rebels of Anatol. Everyone, man, woman, and child, is going into the tribulation and die there. Hopefully they repent ahead of time and can be in the kingdom of God because they were repented of telling absolute lies, saying they had a purchase option instead of a lease, and on and on it goes, and literally stole the land. If that is not repented of, they can't be in the kingdom of God. So God will put them in the tribulation to repent, and I hope they all do, and I hope they're all in the kingdom of God, just as I do you and me. But the Pharisees were just like the rebels of Anathoth, thinking they were righteous, thinking they were following God when they were following the ways of Satan, the ways of this world, doing the things the world is doing, lying, stealing, and cheating. Is that clear? So during the 70 years, they were to go ahead and build houses, church houses, we're referring to the church here now, not just individuals, and serve God in them. Now let's go on down to verse 9. For they prophesied falsely into, unto you in my name. This is, well, let's, let's go back to, to uh, Go back to verse 7. Pick it up in a manual sense. Uh, so, go ahead and bear sons and daughters, grow, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it. So, if you were in Chicago or New York or Miami or London or Istanbul or wherever you were, uh, 
You are to be as at peace with them as you can be because you're still in captivity there, even though in our minds we are now ambassadors for Christ and represent his kingdom, and yet we're still living in the pagan kingdoms of this world. And pray to the eternal for it. For in the peace thereof shall you have peace. You've got to deal with them. And God says, hey, wherever you're at when you're called, pray for the peace of that city because uh, if it isn't at peace, you won't be either. Now, I remember living for a while on 7th Avenue, not well, not on 7th Avenue, but near it, in Miami. And then there were the riots there in the 60s, and the 7th Avenue, which was only a short distance from where we were living, turned into riots and burning of buildings and murder and mayhem and robbery and riots of all kinds. And there we were in the city of Miami, sent there, not called there, but sent there anyway as a minister. And yet, just a short ways away, here all this was going on. And when that quieted down and the looting and fires and all that stopped, I get this contact from someone, and I was asked to go over there to that very area and meet with a bunch of people who were apparently being converted. So I get there, and there's, I don't remember now, probably 30, 40 people in the room, and it's right there where the riots have just subsided. And I felt somewhat uncomfortable, as did my wife. As we walked in, and they were sitting there, and nobody said anything, Everybody in the room was black but us. I've experienced that the first day I went to the Bahamas. Uh, here's a black man greeting me, and he's speaking crisp British English. These people weren't. But I felt like a minority, <laughs> for sure, in both the Bahamas and in this meeting. And I didn't know the protocol. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what they understood. And... Then somebody asked me to pray, and they all got out of their chairs and kneeled and leaned over their chairs for me to pray. And then I was asked to take the speaker stand, whatever it was, and talk to them, which I did. But my peace was dependent on their peace and the peace of the neighborhood and the city. So that's the kind of thing he's talking about here. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed, not from God, but things that people dream up themselves, and that some of their pastors and ministers dream up, which are not biblical. They might be partly related to the Bible still, but they say things that are without understanding, without a grasp of the truth. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Eternal. Many have raised themselves up as preachers in the last 30 years. We're not ordained uh, at all by anyone who was called of God to do that, as was done in the New Testament. Or they were ordained by the true church, but went into false teaching like the Tkach Bunch and others, and many who left accepted false doctrine. So he's talking here about the church. <clears throat> now, this is interesting in verse 10. For thus says the Eternal, that after 70 years he accomplished at Babylon... I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Now, this place at that time was Jerusalem where Jeremiah was, and it was the promised land where Jerusalem was. 
And that's where we'll return. But it's going to be to the true Jerusalem, not the false Mideast Jerusalem. Now notice what he says. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end, the expectation of our hopes, <clears throat> the positive end is what he's going to bring us. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray to me, and I will hearken to you. <clears throat> at the end of 70 years. What 70 years? When is he going to truly hear us again? Now, I think in that we have come and begun to obey God in coming to the wilderness and to go to the, the right area and are seeking him and seeking the truth, and he has revealed many to us, so he is somewhat with us at least, even though we've not been totally restored yet. But that's what he's talking about here, is that restoral that is to come when the 70 is finished and the remnant come. We are not the remnant. We are, I think, the beginning or the... Uh, Preparation for the remnant to come. So, preparation again is a big thing. Then he says, And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. He tells us, when we're going to find him, when we search for him with our whole heart. Now, that's preparation, preparing our heart, preparing our mind to seek him with all our heart. Now, notice how he will respond to that. This is part of the beauty of this passage. And I will be found of you, says the Eternal. You might seek me here, you might seek me there, but when you truly turn and seek me with all your heart, I will be found of you. I am willing to be found, but I am only willing to be found under certain circumstances, and that is with a zealous, wholehearted, on-fire people. Just the opposite of Revelation 3, where they were slack, lackadaisical, self-righteous like the uh, Pharisees, while they continued to break the law and considered themselves righteous. We have not gotten there yet, brethren. That 70 years may not have yet been quite accomplished. I think it's very near. But I think conditions in the very near future are going to be such that we can't just go along as we have been. We are going to have to turn to God with every fiber of our being because things are going to get that bad soon. And it is when we have that renewed fervor that God is going to finally truly here. He hears us some now. I don't doubt that. But he doesn't and hasn't hear what he wants to hear that is going to make him turn around and smile and give us our hoped for and expected end. That is yet ahead. Some answers now, but not very many until this time comes. He's not going to turn and give the world the blessings that he is going to give them until, until they have been humbled, until they turn with zeal to him. Then he will establish the kingdom of God in the millennium. 
And this, this minor kingdom, small kingdom, will be established the same way, with a zealous, fervent group of returnees who come seeking God with all their hearts. They will have been in the beginnings of the horror that is about to come on this nation, particularly ahead of time, and then the rest of the world. And they will come out just ahead of the northern army that is coming to destroy this nation. And you talk about scared, afraid, fervent, praying with all their hearts, seeking God, trying to find out where Zion is. They're going to come ready to obey. They're going to be teachable. All these people have all their different doctrines they've come up with are going to be ready to shed those and forget them and listen to the two who pour out the golden oil to all seven churches. Zechariah 4. That's the way it's coming about. And at the end of the 70 years, you'll seek me with your whole heart and I will be found of you and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Eternal, and I will bring you again into this, the place, whence I carried you, caused you to be carried away captive. Now, we began to be converted through the Jerusalem of Hebrews 12, the church established through Herbert Armstrong. And yet, even though we had become part of that, we were still in the Babylon of this world, and particularly the Babylon of the USA and the rest of Israel. <clears throat> because you have said, the Lord has raised us our prophets in Babylon. So, they will think the ministers in United and Living and Dave Pack's thing and Flurry's thing and all these other smaller ones, they're going to think God has raised up those ministers and it's going to become very, very clear that God did not. They raised themselves up. God is going to raise up the two witnesses and send the remnant of faithful to them. The others, God did not send. Uh, know that this, thus says the Lord of the King that sits upon the throne of David, and of all the people that dwell in this city, and of your brethren that are not gone forth with you into captivity, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will send upon them the sword, the famine, and the pestilence. Same thing as Ezekiel 5, talking of our nation and the people's, whom God is not calling to be part of the remnant. <clears throat> the Laodiceans that remain and the rest of Israel will have the sword, the famine, and the pestilence come upon them. And I will persecute them with the sword, with the famine, and with pestilence, and will deliver them to be removed to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse and an astonishment and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they have not hearkened to my word, says the Eternal, which I sent to them by my servants the prophets, rising up early and sending them, but you would not hear, says the Eternal. I would say it's fairly easy to say that even the ministers of the Church of God still do not understand Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. They don't know what it's saying. They still think that they're just going to fly off to a place of safety, and then the witnesses will preach to the world, wherever they are and wherever they come from, and then they'll be resurrected. It's kind of like the Protestants with their uh, secret rapture thing. They just don't get it. <clears throat> so here we are captive in Babylon and at the end of 70 years 
that's going to be lifted. Now go down to verse 23. Because they have committed villainy, or were vileness, in Israel, and have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and have spoken lying words in my name, which I have not commanded, even I know, and am a witness, says the Eternal. But God sees all the sin, the lying, the cheating, the stealing, uh, adultery, fornication, everything that's going on and has been within the church. The rebellion against them, even though people still think they're righteous and think they're sons of God. And they're not worshiping God, they're worshiping Satan, the devil, because he is the chief of liars and the greatest thief, trying to steal the very throne of God. And I know some people are trying to steal land that was given us by God. It's God's land, and yet they have essentially stolen it. It's a faith of comply. It's, it's done, being surveyed now and turned over to them completely, some of it. There will not, this will not go without punishment. God is not mocked. Thus shall you speak to Shemaiah, the Nehelamite, saying, Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, Because you have sent letters in your name unto all the people that are in Jerusalem, and, and so on, the Lord has made you priests in the stead of Jehoiada, uh, the priest, that you should be officers in the house of the Eternal, where every man that is mad and makes himself a prophet that you should put him in prison and in the stocks. Now therefore, why have you not reproved Jeremiah of Anathoth, which makes himself a prophet to you? You've had guys stand up and say they're prophets, and that they're supposed to be put in stocks and bonds, but you haven't done that to Jeremiah. Well, they did. For therefore he sent to us in Babylon, saying, This captivity is long. Seventy years. Build houses and dwell in them as it was the first of this chapter. And Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the ears of Jeremiah the prophet. So Jeremiah says, you've gotten all these false prophets. You've recognized some of them. And you've punished them. Why haven't you punished me? Basically. And that's kind of the end of the, the letter. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Send to all of them of the captivity, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah the Nehelamite, because that Shemaiah has prophesied to you, and I sent him not, and he caused you to trust in a lie. He said it was going to be a short captivity. Don't build houses. You'll be back here in Jerusalem soon. <clears throat> God said, No. This is end-time prophecy now. Uh, he's going to punish that man, he says, and he shall not have a man to dwell among this people. Neither shall he behold the good that I will do for my people, says the Eternal, because he has taught rebellion against the Eternal. And that man did die. Now, we're getting down close to the end of this sermon, and I haven't gotten to some of the things that I hinted at at the beginning, about 70 years, and there being more than one, uh, and a bit of speculation. So, uh, I don't think we'll get into all of that. Maybe I'll save it until uh, <clears throat> next time, either, probably not trumpets, but maybe the next day, which is a Sabbath. We'll see. Uh, but let's finish this up here uh, with a couple of thoughts in chapter 30. The words that came to Jeremiah from the Eternal, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write you all the words that I have spoken to you in a book. For lo, the days come, says the Eternal, that I will bring back, or again, or stop the captivity of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Eternal, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. 
So he's talking here about his tithe, the remnant of the church that is going to be coming back to the original promised land, Zion and Jerusalem. And these are the words that the Eternal spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Eternal, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. What are we beginning to hear right now in our nation? I'm reading articles say it's coming apart at the seams that this transgender movement is uh, dividing us, that COVID and who will wear a mask and who will not in this next round may decide who's on which side in the civil war that is to come. Easy to tell who to shoot, unmasked or masked. We hear of financial tremors and that the crash is getting nearer. We hear World War III has started in the Ukraine, and it will spread. So what do we hear right now in our land? A voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask you now and see whether a man does travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Everybody's getting a little scared. Everybody's feeling the labor pains of what's coming down on us. Now, we have quite a few references through the prophecies about a woman in travail to bring forth Christ, and that we have tried and have only brought forth wind. We haven't accomplished it. I'll have more to say on that when we get into this other thing that I've just mentioned. But it's like the whole nation's going into labor. That is a symbol of pain and hurt and fear, especially the first child that a woman has. Uh, those feelings are there. And he says the men, even, in our nation are beginning to feel the same day a woman does before she has a baby, especially her first one. Uh, it doesn't come that easy. It's difficult. And we hear about... These things that are coming, and it causes us pain. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Jacob as a nation, or Jacob as a church? He explains that in the next verse. For it shall come to pass in that day, that's the end time, says the eternal of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck and will burst your bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. Are we not increasingly, day by day, being brought into deeper captivity by Washington, D.C., and those goons that run it? Yes, we are. And they're going to start bringing trouble on Christians, anybody who claims to be a Christian, even if they're not a true Christian, even if they claim Christianity of any kind, they're going to be killed. And we read that, I think, last week in Revelation, about all the souls under the altar and those that are going to be killed before the beast takes over. They're going to be uh, the blood will be upon the head of our nation, upon Jacob's head. And here he says, Jacob's trouble is coming, and Jacob will be destroyed by famine, pestilence, and disease and war, but he will save his true Jacobites, true Christians, not those who claim to be Christian but continue to break his law, but true Christians out of it. They'll come and worship him in Zion. But they shall serve. Well, it said, I'll break his yoke from off your neck, Jacob's yoke, and will burst your bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the eternal their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. I think Rebbebel is a type of David. 
And Christ certainly came from David, and he'll be there ruling. So as Jacob's trouble comes, and it is now there, and that's why we hear a voice of trembling fear and not of peace, that he's going to deliver his people. And remind yourself then that he's talking here of Jeremiah of Anathoth, if you will, and after 70 years, back in verse 10. What does all that mean? How is it all coming down? We'll get to that in the sermon.